0: John chapter 1, we're going to get there in a couple of minutes, but we're talking about the Methodist church and I've split it up, now this will be the third and final lesson on the Methodist church, boy there's so much we could say about it and, and so many things that I came across as I read and watched different videos from the church that, that they have put out and different things and so I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on what we're going to talk about tonight as far as not giving you something that they don't actually believe, um, but I don't claim to be an expert on it either, so I, I, I would more than be more than willing to be corrected if I'm wrong on some of these things. But what I want to talk about, at least starting off here tonight, is talking about the Methodist doctrine. And um, what I normally do, especially if we're going to take a little bit more time, is go through the Bible and show where these things are wrong and where they're off. I'm not going to do that tonight, uh, because I think for the most part, it's, um, I'm going to talk about some of why it's wrong. Um, but for the most part, it'd be a great study for you to go do on your own if you wanted to do something like that. But I think a lot of these we've already talked about, we've already discussed and, and uh, you know, looked at all these verses in the Bible about why these different things are wrong. Because honestly, a lot of these false religions have a lot of the same things wrong. And so we've already looked at these different topics. But I find it interesting how the Methodist Church actually describes their own doctrine Really, in a concise form on their website, uh, they have a they have a couple different websites that that um, I really spent a lot of time trying to go through and, and look at. And uh, of course, they have the the, um, the the Book of Doctrine and all of that kind of stuff. And you know, they have they have a bunch of different things that they use. But they have one called ResourceUMC.org, which is um, basically a resource page for church leaders, uh, anybody that's involved in teaching or I mean, obviously anybody can get to it. I was able to get to it without even trying. It's one of the first things that came up. So it's not like they're trying to keep it hidden. But it's mainly made for people who are leaders in the United Methodist Church. And so they have a lot of what does the United Methodist Church believe about this? What do they believe about this? How do they define that? So it was actually very informative from their standpoint on what they believe. And then there's also one called UMC.org, which has a lot of that same kind of stuff on there. So I I think it would be interesting for you to kind of go through there and if you're interested in more of what they believe, to go go read through some of those things but um by the way on the front page of their website this resource uh resourceumc.org um there is what looks like i'm sure it's done on purpose two lesbians on the very front uh very front page of their website which is a very hot button topic with the Methodist Church right now. We're going to talk about that as we get into it a little bit more but this is what it says anyway. What does a United Methodist believe? United Methodists believe in actualizing their faith in community. Actions speak louder than words. The three simple rules are do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. Some beliefs we share with other Christians are the Trinity, God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Jesus, birth, death, and resurrection. That's what they chose to define in a very concise way what they believe as United Methodists. And to me, I mean, so yes, obviously we believe in the Trinity. We believe in the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those are, those are very important things. Um, but really, they're, they're, you know, if, if I was going to be concise at saying what I believe, I would include the gospel in there, you know? Uh, Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins and so on, and, and they say, do good. Be good to other people, you know? It seems to me in all the reading that I've done that the Methodist doctrine relies very much on a works-based salvation. Um, John Wesley's Articles of Religion were drawn from the Anglican 39 Articles, which obviously the Anglican Church was the Church of England. So the fact that he drew the articles for the religion of the Methodist Church from the Anglican Articles of Religion kind of tells you at least, even if he made a split from them, which he did, uh, where he's basing everything on. And honestly, the Methodist Church and the Anglican Church are not that different from each other today. Um, traditional Methodist theology, basically, you know, they hold to the biblical doctrine of inspiration, they say the Bible's inspired, you know, God, the Trinity, uh, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, the resurrection, heaven, hell, so they believe in a lot of the exact same things, and I think the line kind of gets murky for me um, on whether or not a Methodist is saved or not, and I think there's there's a good number of them that can be, depending on what they actually believe. Um, because really, when you start getting into their website and things, there's a lot of wishy-washy answers that they're trying to kind of play both sides, and so they play the side of the, because they're, they're, they're a giant organization, is essentially what it is, and in any organization, you have very liberal factions, and you have very conservative factions, and I think, in fact, the conservative sides of the uh, United Methodist Church actually still holds to the King James version of the Bible and a lot of other things, and so... Um, you know, in looking at that, I think they very much hold to exactly what John Wesley intended Methodism to be, even though John Wesley, I believe, was wrong in a few things. But this, it's just moved further and further and further away from that and changed dramatically, really, in the last 40 or 50 years, and have really moved in, in a wrong direction. But Wesley was Arminian. He edited a magazine called The Arminian Magazine. He rejected Calvinism, and particularly the points that deal with unconditional election, irresistible grace, and limited atonement. But what he actually did not um, reject at all was that, that he didn't believe that the, that, that the human will was the cause of salvation, but he did believe that a Christian could lose his salvation through willfully turning from Christ. This is an article that I came across entitled, Do United Methodists Believe Once Saved, Always Saved? They say this, and this is, this is a little bit lengthy, but I, rather than trying to explain it, I, I felt that it was best to just kind of read through. Um, can we lose our salvation? This is, this is quoting them now. A short but very incomplete answer is that our church teaches we can end up losing the salvation that God has begun in us. And the, consequences, uh, the consequence of this in the age to come is our eternal destruction in hell. God freely grants us new birth and initiates us into the body of Christ in baptism. The profession of our faith and growth in holiness are necessary for God's saving grace to continue its work in us. And both of these things are both of these are things we must engage in for our love to be genuine and not compelled. We thus remain free to resist God's grace, to revert to spiritual torpor, and possibly experience spiritual death and hell as its consequence. So, um, the article goes on to explain a, a long list of why they're saying what they're saying, um, basically uh, uh, an explanation of Calvinism versus Arminianism, uh, which, by the way, I don't hold to either one of those. I'm not Calvinist or Arminian, but Uh, They try to explain it, but ultimately they conclude this way. In our Wesleyan-Arminian theology, as in all mainstream Christian theology, salvation still isn't ours to possess. It is always and only God who saves. In that sense, we cannot lose salvation, but we can fall away from it. Or to use another metaphor, we can move so far from the saving streams of God's love and power that we parch and spiritually die. The consistent focus of Wesley's teaching, however, is far less the warning about the possibility of such death and thus ultimately hell, though he does not shrink from offering such warning upon occasion, even as noted in the quote above, but rather upon the consistent unfailing grace of God revealed in scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ, the God who is abounding in mercy and steadfast love. Once saved, always saved. No, we're not Calvinists. We don't believe God has orchestrated the world and the universe to make that the necessary outcome for some limited number of the preselected. We're not reducing salvation to a propositional transaction, as some forms of American Protestant proclamations have done, so that once we believe and say certain things, no matter what else happens, we have salvation and can never lose it. Perhaps a better phrase, though one Wesley himself did not use, would be one that starts where Calvin starts, not with us, as once saved, always saved often seems to do, but with God. God is out to save us, one and all. Though we have no faith we can articulate, God is out to save us, one and all. Though our faith may grow dim and our works disorderly, God is out to save us one and all. Though we may lose our way and do terrible things to others, God is out to save us one and all. And though for some, God's efforts to save may still leave them in spiritual death and hell, God is out to save us one and all. Once saved, always saved? No. But always, always called to the fullness of God's salvation and always, always loved. The thing is, and, and I found that through their writings and all this, that for them, salvation is not a moment a momentary decision it's a gradual process you grow into salvation so you essentially can never really know if you're saved or not and essentially you can lose it very easily you can uh if you don't basically and this is one of the calvinistic doctrines in the tulip theory the last the last in that the p in that tulip is perseverance of the saints basically if you do not persevere till the end then you're then you're not saved you can lose your salvation and we don't find that in the Bible, um, but that's, that's what they're saying. They described John Wesley at the Moravian meeting and his quote about it in the article that they wrote, are we saved if accepting God's grace happens gradually, not in one moment? So basically, they're asking that exact same question. Are you saved? If, if you're not saved, if salvation is not a moment where you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, can you be saved, essentially? So that's the, that's the title of the article. Are we saved if accepting God's grace happens gradually, not in one moment? They say this, throughout their ministry, Wesley and his brother Charles, who had a similar experience a few days prior, often sought to describe the value of such a heartwarming and memorable experience. What the Wesleys never did, however, was insist that such an experience was necessary before people could properly say that they were growing Christians, continuing in the way that leads us, leads us to life. So essentially what they're saying is, okay, so John Wesley mentioned in, the, um, in his diary or wherever that when he was at the Moravian meeting, he felt this heartwarming, you know, this, this heartwarming sensation come over him. And then he didn't really have that joy that comes through Jesus Christ until a couple weeks later. Then he he had that peace, but then a couple weeks later he got that joy. So I don't know exactly what John Wesley was trying to say, but what the Methodists have taken is to say that salvation is an experience that for some takes years. For others, it might take just a short time, like it did for the Wesleys. But they're basically saying that salvation is not a momentary thing. It's something that you grow into. They then conclude the article this way. While God can come to us at any time and at any place, it is often helpful to prepare our hearts to be receptive to the Holy Spirit stirring within us. The means of grace, regular practices of studying scripture, receiving communion, responding to human need, working for justice, put us in a place where we are open to receiving the grace of God. So you see, I mean, they're they're giving you an idea of these are some works that you need to do in order to be able to earn your salvation. The means of grace, regular practice of studying the scripture, receiving communion, responding to people who need help, working for justice. Those are things that help us get to a place where we can accept salvation. Essentially, you're working for it. Some of us, they say, may experience profound and memorable moments of assurance, as John and Charles Wesley both did. In 1738, but those moments are not the full or even a very large part of our actual story of salvation. They may instead be seen as extraordinary moments on the way toward our complete salvation, our lives becoming filled with God's love and fully aligned with God's will over time. So they essentially are saying that salvation is a process, not a momentary decision, which is interesting to me. Why did Jesus use this, the parable of being born again, right? Right? And I think if, you're, if Jesus used that, then, you know, and we talk about that, you know, the second birth, you know, you're born once uh, with water, you're born the second time with the Spirit. How long does it take somebody to be born? I mean, is, is a birth a process that takes, you know, months or years? No, it's a, it's, it's a thing that happens, and once it's happened, it's done, right? It's either a second birth or it's not. A, a second birth is not a gradual, long, drawn-out process, the same way that the first birth is not. And I think that's an important thing that Jesus used that as an illustration. Because you're born and that's the end of it. You can't get unborn, right? You can't lose your salvation. You can't, I mean, you're not, it doesn't take, you know, weeks or months to be born, right? So, I mean, there might be some, uh, the Holy Spirit moving us and leading us toward that where your heart is getting softened and you hear the gospel once and you hear it twice and. You're watching Christians, and you're reading the Bible, and your heart is getting soft toward the things of God, but that's kind of like the, you know, a baby in the womb, right? Once a baby is born, it's born. It can't go back in. It, can't, it doesn't take months to, for that to happen. It's a momentary thing. So um, very much, uh, I, think I believe they're wrong on that if you look at everything the Bible has to say about salvation. But the other thing that John Wesley believed and taught and preached was that he felt that a believer could reach a state of sinless perfection. Um, He called it entire sanctification. And he said it came through the purifying power of the Holy Spirit. Now, in, and and he he referred to Matthew where it says, uh, uh, Be perfect even as your heavenly Father which is in heaven is perfect. And so he said, If if God's perfect, then we can be perfect just like God. 1 John chapter 1 and verse number 8. The, the, the book of First John was written to Christians, right? He says this in verse number 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, even though John Wesley, might I, I, I think, was on the right track, and I think our goal ought to be to try to be as sinless and as perfect as we possibly can... We're never going to get there in this life because we're human, because we face the flesh, because we fight the flesh. We ought to get to the point where we can, you know, where we try as much as we can to live perfectly before God. But uh, these verses and others, particularly there in 1 John, but in other verses as well, make it very clear that we'll never reach that level of sinless perfection until we get to heaven. There's some other things, some other wrong doctrines that they teach and preach. They, uh, they, They baptize infants as well as adults, but usually it's by sprinkling, which again, baptism, the word baptize means literally to immerse. So sprinkling adults or children is, is the wrong form of baptism, but the idea of sprinkling a child, baptizing a child, a baby, does nothing. Um, some aspects of Anglicanism were actually carried over into the Methodist denomination. They have prayer books, they have Um, a rigid, formal liturgy. They have infant baptism and those things that were actually carryovers from the Anglican Church. And they also, they they claim to neglect the Catholic sacraments. They say there's only two sacraments, the baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is exactly what we would believe. Um, But when you actually start looking through it, I, I honestly find that in reading through their own official positions, they participate in most of the same things that the Catholics participate in. They just don't call them sacraments. So... There's only two official sacraments, but they got a bunch of unofficial sacraments, you know, um, when it comes to doing the different things that they do. And, and again, take some time if you want to read through some of the stuff on their website. It's very extensive. There's a lot of things there that you can look through. But let me, let me look at a couple other aspects before we finish up here. Uh, first thing I want to look at is the Methodist and the Charismatic movement. Because. To say that that Methodism provided the soil for the Pentecostal or charismatic movement is is admitted by many, including the Pentecostal historian uh, by the name of Vincent Sinan, Um, but the Methodist doctrine of entire sanctification produced longings within people that could not be satisfied scripturally, since God doesn't promote sinless perfection, Um, and this false doctrine really became a springboard for the Pentecostal doctrine of second blessing Um, baptism of the Holy Spirit after salvation. And what happened is you started having a lot of these Methodist camp meetings that were starting to get very popular, and that's where you had uh, a lot of these weird things that actually popped up, like the jerks, uh, where people would just start jerking around uncontrollably and and slain in the Spirit, and the holy dance and the holy laugh. And um, uh, there was even one called the Barking Revival. People started barking like dogs all over the auditorium, and it was the Holy Spirit that was doing this, you know. Um, and that's the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Outsiders called those Methodist fits, but it's, it's pretty easy to see that the devil was having a heyday with, with, you know, leading people away from sound Bible experience into extremism and error. And out of that confused spiritual and doctrinal climate, the Pentecostal movement of the late 19th century arose. Um, and they, they were the ones that gave rise to that. But the modern interdenominational charismatic movement started in the Methodist denomination in the 1950s. And, um... You see a lot of different things, but, but uh, there was a Methodist pastor by the name of Tommy Tyson who experienced this Pentecostal second blessing, started speaking in tongues, and he traveled widely as a conference speaker within the Methodist church and uh, started really to spread this charismatic message within the Methodist church, um, which again, a lot of the Pentecostal movement arose out of the Methodist church there, but uh, Oral Roberts, He's a well-known faith healer, Pentecostal you know, faith healer. He joined the United Methodist Church in 1968. So, um, and I don't know how long he stayed in there as part of it, but just to show that those two things went very closely hand-in-hand with each other um, uh, around that time. But uh, today there's a very powerful charismatic movement within the United Methodist Church. Um, but in 1980, the Charismatic United Methodist Renewal Service Fellowship, and I know it's a long word, United Methodist Renewal Services Fellowship, actually gave formal offices at the United Methodist Church headquarters, the national headquarters in uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, to the Pentecostal charismatic uh, wing, or maybe I should say splinter that had kind of broken off of the United Methodist Church. But Pentecostalism has always fed on these apostate apostate denominations because they, they very easily give rise to those things. When you're moving away from sound biblical doctrine, it's very easy to get into those things. Um, Let me mention this, and and again, there's a lot to cover that I'm not going to cover, but Methodist denominations. So there's lots of denominations of Baptists, right? So somebody says, I'm a Baptist. It can mean a lot of different things. Are you a Southern Baptist? Are you an Independent Baptist? Are you a Primitive Baptist? Are you a Reformed Baptist? I mean, it, it means a lot of different things. And the same thing is true within the Methodist church as well. So when somebody says, I'm a Methodist, Many times they're referring to the United Methodist Church, which we'll talk about in a second, but there are at least 23 other denominations of Methodists within the United States, and um, the Evangelical Methodist Church was organized in 1946 in reaction to the modernism that they were seeing within the Methodist Church. Now again, there was not a lot of denominations at that point within the Methodists. You were just, you were a Methodist or or you weren't. But around that time, especially because the Methodist church itself kind of started moving in this liberal direction, you started seeing splinter groups that were popping off of that because they saw the direction that they were going in there with the charismatics and with the, um, you know, a lot of different other things that we're going to talk about and they didn't like it. And so this, the evangelical Methodists stand on Wesley's 25 articles of religion and they tried to remain really as fundamentalist in their position against the onslaught of liberalism and neo-evangelicalism and uh, psychology and a lot of these other destructive influences of, of these days but that they were starting to see coming on back then and so they they actually have a very large degree of autonomy within their own local churches they do have bishops but they're not the ones that are pushing them to different you know pastorates and things like that and so um, uh, they don't they don't they don't have bishops they have district superintendents i'm sorry but uh, the Evangelical Methodist Church has a membership roughly of 7,500 members in 80 churches in the United States, which is not very big. And worldwide, I think they have uh, 300 churches, 35,000 members. It's not a very big denomination, but they would be, I think, the closest to what we would be. And it's pretty interesting. I'd never even heard of the Evangelical Methodist Church until uh, Pastor Omanza ended up getting in there at that, at that uh, uh, promised land camp. The Promised Land Camp is actually run by the Evangelical Methodist Church. So they have verses posted around the camp, and they're all in the King James, and they have, you know, hymn books that are very similar to ours and so on. I think, you know, I, I do think there's a few things that they do that would be different from us, and I don't know if they're so different that it would lead them in a, in a direction to say that they're not saved. But um, Pastor Almanza, I know they've asked him to come and preach salvation messages to some of their own teen camps that are, that they, or some of their own camps that they host themselves as a camp, so, um, and, and he said, man, I've preached the gospel as clearly as I could do it, and they got up there and gave an invitation and invited people to come and get saved, so um, I think they're very, they're very close, and that's what I'm saying, to, to say that no Methodist is saved because they're working for their salvation, I don't think is correct. I do think there are some factions within the Methodist church who are still holding to very closely to what John Wesley preached when it came to salvation, where John Wesley got off, I think, was after salvation. And, I, you know, obviously I wasn't there when John Wesley was preaching and everything else, so it's hard to make a judgment decision on, on that, and I don't know enough of John Wesley's writings to say he was saved and he preached the true doctrine of salvation, or he wasn't and didn't, so I don't know. But the largest denomination by far is the United Methodist Church, although that could change by the next General Conference in 2024. Um, it's already changing, but it was formed, the United Methodist Church, which ninety. percent probably percent, maybe more, of the Methodist churches that you see in our area are part of the UMC, as they call it, or the United Methodist Church. And that formed in 1968 as a merger of the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren Church. The combined membership of both of them was 11 million in 1965. Uh, It started dropping by 1983. They had 9 million members they've grown since then a little bit. Today, they have about 32,000 churches and 12.7 million members worldwide. And in the United States, they have uh, 6.2 million members. So it's still a very large denomination. And even though there's 23 different denominations of the Methodist church, the United Methodist is by far the largest. But much of their modernism A lot of their political pandering to the left has created a huge rift among the more conservative side of the United Methodist Church. So you have conservative like the Evangelical uh, Methodist Church, and then you have the United Methodist Church that has a conservative faction in it. And then you have a centrist faction in the United Methodist Church, and then you have a very liberal faction in the United Methodist Church. And all three of them are at odds with each other. The liberal side says you're being way too conservative, you're mean-spirited. The conservative side says you're being way too liberal, and the centrist is saying, I think where we are is fine, we just need to hold the line where we are. Um, And so three factions are kind of fighting amongst themselves, and more than likely, all three of them are going to end up splitting off into other different denominations. There's been a lot of talk of split, and, and, and they've denied that a split is taking place. But they canceled their 2020 general conference, which is, you know, they, I mentioned this last week. They do that every four years, and that's where they determine doctrine, they determine direction. They've done this every year since 1974. So again, United Methodist Church has not been around that long, uh, 1974. So I think they've done I think they've done 12 uh, general conferences. This one was going to be a really big one because it was going to decide a lot of things. Well, COVID hit. And I think it was kind of an uh, an excuse for them to kick the can down the road, but I think their excuse mainly was, well, there's a lot of people who can't get visas to come into the United States and have this general conference, and so we're going to push it off until 2024, which is what they've done. Um, But there was a lot within the United Methodist Church who said, we can't wait till 2024. This issue is here. Now we've got to do something about it. And So um, here's how they explain what's happening. The term split applies when there is a negotiated agreement within the denomination to divide assets and resources. No such agreement has been made in the United Methodist Church. The earliest point at which such an agreement could be made would be at the next general conference to be held in 2024. A more accurate term, as suggested by the Reverend William Lawrence, retired dean of Perkins School of Theology and former member of the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church, is splintering. What is happening is that some traditionalist leaders have decided to create their own denomination, the Global Methodist Church. Leaders of that denomination and other unofficial advocacy groups such as the Wesleyan Convent Association, which created it, are encouraging like-minded United Methodist congregations and clergy to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church and join their denomination instead. So, the Global Methodist Church actually officially launched on May 1st of this year. And, um, you know... By the way, that the split takes place and how it forms from there still remains to be seen because they haven't actually met in their general conference to say, okay, this is how you disaffiliate and so on. But a lot of these congregations have taken a vote themselves to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to join this global Methodist church. Now we're disaffiliating from the United Methodist Church. Um, <coughs> I've been looking at all these churches around here because we're trying to find a place and so what i'll end up doing is going onto their website and just kind of see how many people do they have what are they you know whatever and one of them was the united methodist church that I actually got on there and found all the minutes of their meetings and everything and so that is one of the big things that they were talking about is hey we've got to decide what we're going to do as a church are we going to stick with the united methodist church or are we going to split off from that and basically the people within the church have and this is it doesn't normally work this way but because this is such a big issue um, they, the United Methodist Church is actually basically giving individual congregations the right to decide whether they want to stay with the United Methodist Church or splinter off into this global Methodist Church. So um, I, I do believe there will be, will be a large split in the future, whether they want to call it that or not, but that's essentially what it is. But let me, let me finish with this, um, the United Methodist Church and some social issues, because honestly, this first one, United Methodist Church and homosexuality is really the big wedge that is driving this split. Um, There would be no split within the United Methodist Church were it not for this issue of same-sex marriage, um, clergy, same-sex clergy, um, clergy being able to um, um, officiate same-sex weddings and so on. So... uh, In 2019, they actually had a special session of the general conference that met to address this ongoing, unresolved division of homosexuality. And so what they ended up deciding in 2019 was that they actually strengthened their definition and their position against homosexuality. Um, And technically, whatever the, the majority decides, everybody else has to agree with. But they came back to their individual churches and they said, no, we're not following that. And so that's where the whole thing started. So they, they, they made this decision, but the decision really didn't resolve anything. So on January 3rd of 2020, some of these denominational leaders, along with various advocacy groups, submitted a plan called Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation. Um, and I think I've, yeah, so I mean, it's just this long word, long, long name to basically say that what they were trying to do is split the church over what it described as fundamental differences over issues pertaining to the sexual orientation um, and gender identity, which the, the crazy thing is that this is even a conversation, let alone a conversation within church on whether or not there is such a thing as same-sex marriage and gender identity issues where somebody can just say, I'm a woman or I'm a man. By the way, I saw this thing the other day. Um, a same-sex couple is suing, um, I think it's it's a state that they're actually suing, or maybe a hospital, I forget, over the fact that they were actually given a girl instead of a boy. Uh, They wanted a boy, and they were given a girl. What they're basically saying is that there is a difference in gender identity. We wanted a girl, and you gave us a boy, right? Uh, You're basically saying that there is a difference in the genders, and that it does matter, you know? Um, But anyway, so the Protocol of Reconciliation and Grace Through Separation, that plan would actually create a new traditional Methodist denomination with the existing church moving more toward acceptable, uh, as they call it, uh, acceptance of non-heterosexual and gender non-conforming identities. Basically, what they're saying is the United Methodist Church, then, is going to move in the direction of accepting all of these people, not just, and again, we accept them in the, in the way that if somebody came in through the door and they claim to be homosexual, we're not going to kick them out. They need Christ, but they're certainly not going to be serving in the church. They're not going to be taking communion. They're not going to be leading the church. They're not going to be leading ministries and so on. But, and this is what they're trying to come to an agreement on. This is what they're saying they're going to do. But essentially, what they, what they decided in 2020 uh, and they're supposed to vote on a plan which ended up getting pushed back but the plan would have needed to be approved in May 2020 by the general conference which is now pushed to 2024 but it was grant the new denomination 25 million dollars would allow local churches to vote to affiliate with that new denomination and keep their assets if they leave and and again because of COVID they pushed that off to 2024 but progressives actually announced that they, too, were coming up with their own denomination within the Methodist Church as well, and they were calling it the Liberation Methodist Connection, C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N. But again, homosexuality, I mean, it started in 1972, the, the debate over that, and then they actually, the United Methodist Church, actually agreed with Roe versus Wade in that abortion should be legal within the United States when it first came out in 1974. And they gave over $400,000 to abortion advocacy groups and so on. Um, but this is what they said in their statement in their first um, general conference in 1972. While affirming belief that persons of homosexual orientation are persons of sacred worth who need the ministry and guidance of the church, the statement added that the church does not condone the practice of homosexuality and considers this practice incompatible with Christian teaching, that's their official stance, but they have, I mean, very soon after that general conference, they had um, the New York, uh, I mean, bishops in Colorado and California that were actually ordained, and they were homosexuals, the New York United Methodist Church Conference passed a resolution that said this, we deeply regret our denominations continued oppression of homosexual persons. We look forward to the day when the church will accept gay and lesbian persons into full fellowship. Another guy that was getting ready to retire, this is back in 1985, but this shows you kind of the progression. So 1972, late 70s, early 80s, 1985, a bishop by the name of Melvin Wheatley was speaking to a body of metropolitan community churches, and he said this. I clearly do not believe that homosexuality is a sin. Homosexuality, quite like heterosexuality, is neither a virtue nor an accomplishment. It's a mysterious gift of God's grace. His or her homosexuality is a gift, neither a virtue nor a sin. And, and a lot of these United Methodist churches for years now have been, have been um, performing same-sex weddings, uh, allowing um, clergy who are in that same position James Kahn, he's a pastor of the United Methodist congregation in Ocean Park, California, said this. The gospel, as I understand it, is about the quality of the relationship, whether it is a homosexual or a heterosexual one. Uh, another guy in 1988. I do not believe we know enough about homosexuality to make hard and fast rules. I would have hoped we could be more open and compassionate to people of different sexual orientations. I come with no prejudgments. 1988, they actually uh, sponsored an enrichment weekend for homosexual couples, so, uh, and it just continues on and on, in in May of 2000, the United Methodist Quadrennial Assembly, which is, they meet every um, four years, they voted to retain its ban on, quote, holy union services and homosexual clergy, but in practice, there's a lot of that openly within the denomination, so that's why they've gotten to the point where there is a rift and a split that's taking place in the United Methodist Church. Officially, they say they're against it. But there's all kinds of clergy, there's all kinds of uh, people serving um, in, in the United Methodist Church. And so today, their official statement in the midst of their ongoing divide says this. The church affirms that all people are of sacred worth and are equally valuable in the sight of God. It is committed to be in ministry with all people. The church implores families and churches not to reject or condemn lesbian and gay members and friends. Underlying this is the constitutional principle of inclusiveness of the church. Everyone is welcome to worship and actively participate in the life of our churches. Laypersons may become members and live out their faith through their local church without respect to sexual orientation or practice. And obviously, in reading and watching their, the things that they're producing, they're very much divided on this issue. And so, of course, we do as Jesus does, right? We love the sinner, we reject and and hate the sin. Uh, we can't condone the sin. We can't go on allowing it to be undisciplined in the church. And there's, there's church discipline that is made for people who will not give up their sin, right? Um, if you're living in known sin, you cannot be right with God, and therefore you cannot serve in the church. And this is what the United Methodist Church, at least in the central and liberal factions, are trying to push. And that's why the conservative side of it is saying, you can't have that, and, and this has been our official position for years and years and years, and now you're trying to say that it's acceptable, and same thing is true then on abortion. In 1972, they, they came up and, and, and supported the Roe v. Wade uh, legalization, um, but this is their official statement today. It's pretty lengthy, but I, I just basically boiled it down. Um, what's lengthy is why, you know, they're trying to, to preface why they're saying what they're saying, but this is what they come down to. While we understand the need for women to have access to safe legal abortions, we also mourn and are committed to promoting the diminishing of the high abortion rates. We encourage ministers, ministries that reduce unintended pregnancies such as sex education, access to voluntary family planning, contraception, and initiatives that enhance the quality of life for all women and girls around the globe. So again, same thing. They're waffling on this issue and trying to make it sound like they're still uh, standing against it while also saying, but we agree that, that you know, abortions are necessary and that we, we need it and that, that every woman should have access to a safe abortion and so on. And, and then the last thing is, because I think this is a big thing within, within the United Methodist Church as well, is, is the United Methodist Church and feminism. They, um, the feminist movement exercises a very powerful Uh, influence within the United Methodist Church. They've ordained women into the ministry uh, in the United Methodist Church since 1956. And they were honestly one of the earliest ones to allow that within their denomination. But as of 2006, I couldn't find any numbers earlier than or later than 2006. But as of 2006, they had 12,000 ordained women as pastors. And I think they had something like uh, 16 or 20 of them that had actually been ordained as superintendents so you have bishops, and then you have the superintendent. so they're working their way very high up into the Methodist church, but um, the first one that they ordained was actually in, in 1980 in the United States, But um, get the, and this is where this leads. So in their, their United Methodist worship book, there's a number of references to God as both a mother and a father. Because now you're going to start allowing this stuff, and you you start putting these feminists in these positions, now they're saying, well, how do we know that God is a man? Why can't God be a woman? Well, I guess maybe he is, so now we'll call God father and mother. And so, um, uh, this is the statement in their worship book, is Jesus, good Lord, are you not also mother? That's where that leads. 1984, the United Methodist Church approved a report that called on all its churches to refer to God and Jesus Christ only in sexually inclusive language. In other words... Don't address God as He or Father. Uh, 1986, the Rocky Mountain Conference issued a ruling that required that all candidates for ordination use inclusive language in referring to God. So you could only use words like Creator and Redeemer. You couldn't say Heavenly Father. You couldn't say uh, King or Lord. It had to be, you know, uh, Divine Light, those kind of things. Um, and they couldn't refer to they could refer to God as mother or father or as he or she. You can call God she if you want to. And that's, again, that's where this feminism leads. Um, but this, this unscriptural feminist attitude of many of the United Methodist Church clergy, quote-unquote, um, you see that there's, there's comments made by this a, a woman who is claiming to be a pastor speaking before a woman's conference in 1985. She said this. Paul held what we would consider sexist views of women. Paul was a man of his time and that he never meant his statements about women to become the basis for the teaching of the entire church. So in other words, because times are changing and have changed since the Bible was written, then you could just change it to make it say whatever you want it to say. You can change the Bible to make it fit with today. Um, And she estimated, this was back in the 1980s, she estimated that by 2000, um, at least 50% of the clergy in California would be women. And she was very close to correct. Um, in, in many states, it's 50-50 split, men and women as clergy in the United Methodist Church. Um, and there's, there's a lot of other things that we could talk about that I could say, but I, I want to I give you this as we, as we end. In 1984, the United Methodist Women's Division issued an alternative to the Lord's Prayer. And again, this is what I'm saying. When you, when you start promoting feminism and you take it out to its furthest degree, which is exactly what they've done, you have to allow this stuff. And they did. Our mother slash father who is everywhere. this is By the way, this is the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus prayed, quote, unquote. Our mother who is everywhere. What does it say? Our father which art in heaven. Our mother slash father who is everywhere. Holy be your names. May your new age come. May your will be done in this and in every time and place. Meet our needs each day and forgive our failure to love as we forgive this same failure in others. Save us in hard times and lead us into your ways of love. For yours is the wholeness and the power and the loving forever. Amen. Doesn't sound very much like the the, the model prayer, does it? The Lord's Prayer. But it's gotta be inclusive because now we're feminists and we have to include all these things. Let me end with this conclusions just to kind of wrap everything up that we've talked about. <coughs> Number one, by no means am I an expert on the Methodist church. And I, I as what I said at the beginning, I, I admit that I could be wrong on some of these things because I don't know everything that they've ever written and talked about and everything else. But my perception is that they believe in salvation by grace through faith plus works. Um, they're very close on a lot of things, but when you throw works into it, it's not all of Christ and some of works. It's either all of Christ or you don't have salvation, right? So even if you throw a little bit of works into it, it's not salvation. It's either all of Christ and none of you, or it's not It's not salvation. If you don't continuously earn your salvation, you don't have it, or you can lose it. That's what they say, and that's, you know, to them, whether that was the way John Wesley intended or not, salvation has become a process, not a momentary rebirth. And again, like I mentioned, that doesn't make sense in the light of what a rebirth is or what a birth is. Number three, Though there are a couple of Methodist denominations that have held true to John Wesley's original teachings that I do believe are pretty close to what we believe in many aspects. The United Methodist Church has drifted very far from um, where they started into just basically a rote religion. Um, the fact that they have infant baptism really shows a complete lack of understanding of the gospel. Why would you baptize a baby? It does no good, right? It doesn't help anything. The fact that they say you can lose your salvation means you're working for it. And so, honestly, whether John Wesley was that and started it that way, and it's just gradually moved away from that or not, and, and I think that's what we have to say for number four. They're very progressively moving away from biblical doctrines when it comes to the LGBT stuff and and abortion and feminism and all of those things. They're moving away from the Word of God. Whether that's the way they started it or not, that's where they are now. And I, you know, you read some of the writings of John Wesley, and you read the songs that Charles Wesley wrote they were very much um, biblical, doctrine-based songs and biblical, doctrine-based writing. And I think there were often a couple things, um, but I I do believe that that had the Methodist church stayed with what John and Charles Wesley preached, then for the most part, they would be saved. They've moved away from that. And the farther they move away from that, the less people there are within the Methodist denomination that are actually going to be saved because it's a process that you're working through. It's, uh, it's something that you're working to keep in order to stay saved and, and persevere until the end or you don't have salvation. And, and so, you know, those who are within the United Methodist Church that believe what the United Methodist Church is teaching are not saved because they're not doing it the way that the Bible says. It's, it's by grace through faith plus nothing or it's not salvation. And that's not what they have when it comes to the majority of what they're teaching and preaching. And So, um, you know. To, to talk with a Methodist, uh, and my wife's mom grew up Methodist, and this was back in the 60s, you know, 50s and 60s, and uh, she came to know Jesus Christ as her Savior, and looking back on it, she said it was very much work-based. It's, it's all about what you can do to earn your salvation, and uh, so in that way, it very much is like Anglican and Episcopal and Catholic and everything else, and again, just rote religion is what it comes down to. So hopefully that's a help to you. Like I mentioned, if you want to read through some more of those things and um, get a little bit, maybe a little bit better understanding of, of the Methodist church and what they believe in their own words, go look up umc.org or go look, look up resourceumc.org, and, and there's tons and tons and tons of articles that you can read through on there that'll maybe give you a little bit of, better of an understanding of where they stand on some of these other issues that we didn't have time to cover. But that's it for Methodists. We'll get into a new one next week, all right? Let's pray. Father, we love you. Give me thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for the opportunity you've given us to be here tonight. I pray for all of those that are dealing with, with uh, physical difficulties, some in the hospital. God, I, you know each situation. And for those that are traveling as well, I pray that you give them safety also. Thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.